got Sidereo Breath, um, constructs based on radio signals from other galaxies uh, put together by Dr. Fiorella Terenzi. It's All Too Much from George Harrison and the Beatles. Thank you, gentlemen. Poetry and all that jazz, actually the voice that you heard sort of wafting in saying that slogan in the beginning and the end of the piece was Lenny Bruce, but most of the speech on this track from the United Future Organization was the voice of Jack Kerouac. Reap What You Sow from Diamanda Galas, the album The Singer on Mute Records, and an instrumental from the Bonzo Dog Band called Turkeys, originally released on the album Let's Make Up and Be Friendly. Perhaps you recognized Van Morrison, a series of minute-long or less recordings that he made in order to fulfill a contractual agreement, clearly mad as hell at the producers. Um, The titles you heard, Ringworm, You Say France and I'll Whistle, Blow in Your Nose, Nose in Your Blow, and La Mambo. I got that off a... uh, a second disc that was put in on, on a uh, MIL compilation, Browd Eyed Beginnings. Uh, disc two is called Jamming Session. And we started with Sport, The Odd Boy, a tribute to boys who would rather lay down and read Mallarmé rather than play rugby. Hmm? Thank you, Bonzo Dog Band. It is now time as I'm filling in for Mike Perini in the next 29 minutes. I'm, uh, before I get into Face the Music, I wanted to give you a live reading from The Taste of War. World War II and the Battle for Food, a book by Lindsay Collingham. I'm sorry, <laughs> I got Lindsay on my mind. Lizzie Collingham. Uh, That's Collingham, if you were to spell it out. This is on Penguin Books, and it's a relatively recent piece of work. And you'll uh, perhaps understand why I'm reading this over um, Dmitry Shostakovich's Piano Trio No. 2 in E minor, Opus 67. Perhaps you'll, uh, it'll become clear as we go along. This is the introduction to the book, The Taste of War. Introduction, War and Food. This begins with a quote. In quotes, death by famine lacks drama. Bloody death, the deaths of many by slaughter, as in riots or bombings, is in itself blood bestirring. It excites you, prints indelible images on the mind. But death by famine, a vast, slow, dispirited, noiseless apathy, offers none of that. Horrid though it may be to say, multitudinous death from this cause, regarded without emotion as a spectacle, 
is until the crows get at it, the rats and kites and dogs and vultures, very dull, unquote. This was the view of newspaper editor Ian Steffens commenting on the Bengal famine of 1943, which killed three million Indians. That's people in India, in Bengal. Three million people starved to death in Bengal in 1943. It is perhaps the quiet and unobtrusive nature of death by starvation which explains why many of those who died of hunger during the Second World War are largely forgotten today. While the Vietnam War is firmly embedded in the Western collective memory, most Westerners have never heard of the famine in the Vietnamese region of Tonkin in 1943-44, which probably killed more peasants than all the years of war which followed. And yet, quote, one dies a very terrible death from starvation, unquote. As one of the survivors of the siege of Leningrad was disturbed to discover, it's not so horrifying when a person has been hit by a shell or a bomb, but what happened as a result of hunger, that was particularly awful the way a person's face changed. A person became an animated corpse, and a corpse is a grim spectacle. During the Second World War, at least 20 million people died just such a terrible death from starvation, malnutrition, and its associated diseases, a number to equal the 19.5 million military deaths. The impact of the war on food supplies was thus as deadly in its effect on the world population as military action. This book seeks to understand the role of food at the heart of the conflict. Now the focus on food is not intended to exclude other interpretations, but rather to add an often overlooked dimension to our understanding of the Second World War. The book begins by uncovering the important role food played in driving both Germany and Japan into conflict. During the 19th century, Europe's urban industrial workforce substantially increased their consumption of meat, while the demand for rice rose significantly among Japan's urban population. Both countries feared that their agricultural sectors could not produce enough food to feed the cities. Britain had responded to the problem of feeding its urban population by embracing free trade and it imported large quantities of food and animal fodder. But Germany and Japan felt disadvantaged by the international economy dominated by Britain and America. Right-wing elements within both countries pushed for an alternative, more radical solution to the problem of food and trade. Rather than accepting subordination to the United States, Hitler preferred to engage in a struggle for world supremacy and looked to an Eastern Empire as a source of food and other resources which would make Germany self-sufficient and independent of world trade. This made war in Eastern Europe inevitable. The Japanese army sought to reduce its country's dependence on the United States by consolidating its hold over mainland China, which many officers saw as an area of settlement and resources, not the least of which was food. 
But Japanese belligerence in China set the country on a collision course with the United States and the Pacific. This perspective on the causes of the Second World War is relevant to the contemporary global food situation. The problem which confronted Germany and Japan in the 1930s of how to feed a growing urban population with the more nutritious but also more costly food which it demands has returned to confront the developing world with an even greater force and with the potential for an equally global impact at the beginning of the 21st century. Rising living standards among the growing urban middle classes in developing countries such as China, India, Indonesia, and Brazil have led to marked changes in eating habits. Zhang Chuen grew up a member of a poor farming family in the rural province of Yunnan. He often went hungry, and he only ever ate meat on special holidays once or twice a year. He never drank milk. Now he's a tennis coach in Beijing, and he and his family can afford to eat meat and drink milk every day. This shift from a grain-based vegetarian diet to one rich in meat and milk has been replicated across China and the rest of the developing world, where hundreds of millions of consumers' food preferences have changed as their nutritional status has improved. Chinese per capita consumption of meat has riven, risen rather, in the last 28 years from 20 kilograms in 1980 to 50 kilograms in 2008. The wider impact of such changing tastes has been to divert ever more of the world's grain harvest into the stomachs of animals rather than humans. In 2007, China imported 45% of the soya beans traded in the world market to feed pigs, poultry, and farmed fish. Approximately 30% of the world's grain crop is now fed to livestock. Now, diverting grain from humans to animals is an extremely inefficient use of food. The 3 to 4.5 kilograms of grain that have to be fed to a steer to obtain half a kilogram of beef contain as many as 10 times more calories and 4 times as much protein as half a kilogram of beef. At the same time, increased demand for grain for feed has pushed up prices and made food more expensive for the poorer sections of the world's population who rely on grains for their staple diet. Even poorer countries have become increasingly dependent on food imports. In West Africa, urbanization has produced a large body of townspeople who've switched from eating traditional staples such as millet and cassava, to eating rice, which has to be imported. In Indonesia and India, small improvements in income have led to a growing demand for imported vegetable oils. Thus, development through industrialization and its inevitable corollary, urbanization, pushes countries into the difficult position of decreasing food self-sufficiency and increasing dependence on a volatile world world food market in which the politically less influential countries with less access to foreign exchange are at a disadvantage. Sub-Saharan Africa's food import bill increased fourfold in the last decade, even though the amount of food imported declined. As the world population and the world's middle class continues to grow and food prices rise, this is likely to become an ever more pressing problem.
It is unlikely that food price rises will eventually be held in check by increased production, as many agricultural experts argue that the technological innovations of the Green Revolution have run their course, and there's little prospect of increasing yields as a result of new farming techniques. Meanwhile, the rising cost of fuel, fertilizer, and increasingly scarce supplies of water is setting a limit on the improvement of agricultural methods in developing countries. Climate change is only likely to make matters worse. While it is estimated that the world's population will increase by a further 3.3 billion in the next 50 years, scientists have warned that half of the world's arable land may become unproductive. The dismal prospect is that as the worldwide demand for meat and livestock livestock products, vegetable oil, and grain grows, the share of food available for the world's poor will decline. In 2007-2008, a food crisis was sparked by a variety of factors working together. An increase in the production of biofuels pushed up the price of sugar, maize, cassava, oil seeds, and palm oil. Drought pushed up the price of wheat. The surge in petrol prices, that is gasoline, increased the cost of fertilizers and doubled the cost of food transport. India responded to the threat that it would not be able to afford to import wheat by imposing an export ban on rice and was followed by Thailand. The Philippines, anxious it would not be able to import enough food to feed its towns, panic bought rice and pushed the price up to over $1,000 a ton. This, combined with speculation in the hoarding of foodstuffs, contributed to further food price spirals. In Egypt, where the government spends more on subsidized food for the poor than it does on health or education, more and more of the population resorted to buying cheap government-subsidized bread, with the result that the government was unable to meet the rise in demand. Bread lines lengthened. The poor found it increasingly difficult to sustain themselves. As grain prices continued to rise, the number of hungry people in the world grows exponentially, and food is once more becoming a catalyst for political conflict. A ripple effect was felt around the world in 2007 and 2008, when food riots erupted not only in Egypt, but in Senegal, Cameroon, Niger, Haiti, and Mexico. One of the most powerful aspects of making food the central focus of an investigation into the Second World War is that the agrarian policy of the Nazi regime is revealed as one of the driving forces behind some of the worst atrocities committed during the conflict. The experience of the First World War had taught the National Socialist leadership, I contend they should be called the uh, social nationalists, but that's just my opinion, Um, It taught them that an adequate food supply was crucial to the maintenance of military and civilian morale. Food shortages among the soldiers on the front and the civilians at home had pushed a deeply demoralized Germany towards capitulation in 1918. It was both fear of a repeat of the disastrous decline in civilian morale and a powerful sense of the German people's superior entitlement to food which made the National Socialists determined that the German population would not go hungry during this war. Instead, others would have to go without food. 
The deliberate extermination by starvation of targeted groups became a defining feature of the National Socialist Food System. That's the Nazis. It was the agronomist Herbert Becke, B-A-C-K-E, who hatched the most radical plan to secure Germany's food supply. He argued that the Wehrmacht, that's the German armed forces, could be fed by diverting Ukrainian grain from Soviet cities. This would solve the problem of feeding a vast army while conveniently eliminating the Soviet urban population who would starve to death. Once the East was conquered and its former inhabitants had been forcibly eradicated, German agronomists intended to create an agricultural empire on the land. Altogether, the regime's agrarian vision for the East generated plans to murder up to 100 million people. The siege of Leningrad, where one million people died of starvation. The blockades of the Ukrainian cities of Kiev and Kharkov, which accounted for at least another 200,000 deaths from famine, were just the first steps towards the implementation of this murderous scheme. The Nazis used the weapon of starvation against an array of other groups of people who were allocated so little food that their eventual death was guaranteed. The daily ration for Polish Jews amounted to a derisory 184 calories. The majority of the 100,000 Jews who died in the Warsaw Ghetto succumbed to starvation. Even the 845 calories allocated to the Polish urban population condemned the recipients to death if they were unable to find alternative sources of food. A proportion of the 200,000 mentally ill victims of Germany's euthanasia program and 2.35 million Soviet prisoners of war were all given so little food that they were slowly but systematically starved to death. In German concentration camps, the number of calories in the food frequently fell below the minimum, 1,200 calories, which the World Health Organization recommends that everyone should eat daily, even clinically obese people trying to lose weight. A diet with fewer calories than this forces the body to begin to consume itself simply to perform normal bodily functions, such as breathing, let alone hard physical labor. Primo Levi at a uh, subcamp of Auschwitz described how the camp is hunger. We ourselves are hunger, living hunger. At night, the prisoners were tortured by dreams of food. Many lick their lips and move their jaws. They're dreaming of eating. Victims of starvation die of nutritional dystrophy, a process whereby once the body has used up all its fat reserves, the muscles are broken down in order to obtain energy. The small intestine atrophies, and it becomes increasingly difficult for the victim to absorb nutrients from what little food he or she is able to obtain. As a defense mechanism, the body reduces the activity of the vital organs, such as the heart and liver, and the victim suffers not only from muscular debility, but from a more general and overpowering fatigue. A citizen of Leningrad who survived all the stages of emaciation recalled that it began simply with wasting, shortness of breath, slowed thought, and then everything went downhill. The darkness, the deadly cold, the hunger, the lack of strength, unquote. Others were afflicted by a painfully acute overexcitement, 
The water content of the body reduces at a slower rate than the wasting of the muscles and tissues, and the flaccidity of the body increases. Some victims of starvation develop hunger edema and swell up with excess water. The swelling begins in the abdomen and legs and spreads throughout the body. The skin becomes stretched, shiny, and hypersensitive. Blood pressure drops, and the victim is plagued by keratitis, redness and soreness of the cornea, sore gums, headaches, pains in the legs, neuralgic pains, tremors, and ataxia, a loss of control over the limbs. These symptoms are accompanied by an intense craving for carbohydrates and salt and uncontrollable diarrhea. Just before death, the victim veers wildly from depression to intense irritation and then a profound torpor. Eventually, the body has no alternative but to sustain itself by taking protein from the vital organs. Those who died in Leningrad were found to have livers that had reduced from a normal 1,800 grams to 860 grams, that's without blood, and spleens reduced from, from 180 grams to between 80 and 55 grams. Most importantly, the heart atrophies. Some victims in Leningrad had hearts that weighed as little as 90 grams compared to an average adult heart which weighs 330 grams. Organ failure is the final cause of death. Starvation is a slow and excruciating process, and the National Socialists discovered that starving unwanted groups to death was far slower and less efficient than they'd expected. When the East failed to deliver the hoped-for quantities of food, panic over the need for ration cuts for German civilians provoked a further radicalization of the regime. The decision was taken to eliminate as many useless eaters, unquote, as possible from the eastern area, with the result that the murder of Soviet and Polish Jews was given new impetus. Thus, food is implicated in the decision to speed up the Holocaust. Even in cases where no deliberate plan existed to actively starve people to death, starvation and hunger were an inevitable byproduct of Nazi food policies. Although the Nazis were at their most ruthless in exporting hunger to the Soviet Union and Poland, the plunder of foodstuffs from other occupied countries resulted in a famine which killed 500,000 people in Greece increased death and infant mortality rates and spread malnutrition, particularly among children, in Czechoslovakia, Poland, France, Belgium, and Holland. During the hunger winter of 1944-45, 22,000 Dutch people succumbed to starvation when the Germans cut off supplies to those parts of Holland which the Allies had failed to liberate. I'm reading from The Taste of War, World War II and the Battle for Food by Lizzie Collingham. I know it's not very uplifting, but it's food for thought, one might say. I don't want to uh, just hammer you too relentlessly here, but it, it is interesting to note this book 
takes on a global perspective. So it talks about hunger that was caused by the disruption of shipping routes in the Atlantic and in the Pacific. And it really was a, a global catastrophe. Um, everything from the little island down um, in the near the southernmost regions of the Indian Ocean, I forget the name of the island, but it was it had been set up as a colonial outpost for 100% sugarcane production. And when the uh, ships couldn't get through, these people who lived there were stuck with an island full of sugarcane, and a famine ensued. Yeah, couldn't just live on sugarcane. And the, uh, you know, plenty of examples of what went down in Africa. It seemed like the Eastern Hemisphere really got mostly hammered because of the, uh, of all of the nations in the Second World War, the United States was able to maintain um, some level of normalcy for the provision of uh, nutrients to its citizenry. I would like to note that uh, out loud over the radio that one of the uh, truly horrifying things that I ran into in this book was uh, the, uh, the example of Winston Churchill, who was so angry at the efforts being made for India to achieve independence from the, uh, the British Empire that when he was told that large numbers of people were starving to death in India because the, uh, uh, the ships carrying uh, food were being diverted to Britain or to other countries in and around Europe who were suffering from shortages of food uh, what Churchill said was, if so many people in India are dying, then why is Gandhi still alive? So that was his attitude towards people in India, a uh, witheringly racist attitude. So I'll just read the last paragraph from the introduction to this book. Um, in all the countries drawn into the Second World War, civilians spent their days lining up for rations, wondering how they were going to scrape together enough food to make the next meal. Digging for victory became a global activity. In every spare scrap of land, people planted potatoes, which became the food of war. Comparatively easy to grow, potatoes were also nutritious, providing protein and vitamins, as well as carbohydrate. Levels of deprivation varied greatly, but virtually everywhere the quality of food declined. Roy Lee Grover, an American B-25 pilot on New Guinea, was appalled by the Australian Army rations he was given. Bully beef, gummy gooey rice, dried onions, and not much else. The bully beef was boiled, baked, and fried for the three meals each day. In desperation, while on a trip to Townsville, he bought a case of 24 quart cans of sliced peaches and sweet syrup, but he was soon equally sick of peaches, and on my return to the States, it was many months before I could include rice or peaches in any meal. Bully beef, mutton, stew, thick like cold glue, rubbery powdered egg, spam, gritty black bread, and potatoes, boiled potatoes, fried potatoes, 
roasted potatoes, potato cakes, potato soup, potato fritters, endless potatoes. These were the tastes of war. That's all I'll read to you from this astonishing book, which I recommend. I wish everybody in America would read it. And I wish they'd teach some people how to read who don't know how to read, and they could read it too. The Taste of War by Lizzie Cullingham. World War II and the Battle for Food. All around the world. And we find that racism was the catalyst for so much genocidal starvation. It's 7 o'clock. This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Arwolf. I've just uh, done what what I do, four and a half hours of freeform radio and then a 30-minute reading. Now it's time for Face the Music, and I'd like to uh, open with a rag composed by Scott Joplin in 1903, and then we'll just jump right into mostly recordings from 1923 and 33. This is my extended way, week by week, of celebrating the closing weeks of the year 2013. This is called Weeping Willow. Scott Joplin, 1903. Recording made in 1989 by pianist William Albright. Face the music. <laughs> 